Good evening, and um, welcome to this event, part of the Sydney Ideas um, set of um, lectures and presentations and forums. Um, we're delighted to have with us this evening Professor Francis Vavris from the United States, from um, University of Minnesota. Um, but before uh, introducing her, let me um, acknowledge um, the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the traditional custodians of our land um, and as examples of the kinds of higher learning and uh, inquiry that this institution promotes. Um, so a little bit about Francis, um, who is Professor in the Program of Comparative and International Development Education at the University of Minnesota. Um, affiliated to universities in Tanzania and a co-founder of Teaching in Action, which is a professional development program for Tanzanian secondary school teachers. Um, she's the North American representative to the ILO, UNESCO Committee of Experts on um, the status of teachers, um, which is the UN affiliated body charged with reviewing working conditions for teachers, academics and violence affecting teachers. So, um, Francis is talking to us tonight on the theme of when what works doesn't, and I'll leave her to uh, fill it in. Thank you very much, Francis. Thank you very much, Professor Welch, and thank you to everyone who decided to stay on a few extra minutes, or I would say at least an hour, uh, this evening. One of the many lessons I've learned during my visit to Australia is the importance of acknowledgement of country. Uh, so I would like to add my recognition to the Chaga and Maasai people of the Kilimanjaro region of Tanzania, who are the traditional custodians of the land where the research I'll be discussing tonight was conducted. I would like to begin my talk this evening by telling a story of an incident that occurred 23 years ago at a secondary school in the Kilimanjaro region of Tanzania. An incident I can still vividly recall in all of its inglorious detail. It was March 1993, and I had only recently begun teaching English at Njema Secondary School, a pseudonym I use for this institution. Located on the slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro, it was built in the late 1800s to serve as the headquarters for the German colonial administration for northern Tanganyika. When German rule ended following World War I, Tanzania became a British trust territory, and the building was used for the few children who were able to obtain education beyond the basic primary level. When Tanzania gained independence in 1961, the school closed its doors for a decade because the new government decided to use its limited resources for adult education and primary schooling. Reopening in the 1970s, there were new teachers and an African-oriented curriculum, but the school facilities had not been revamped, and teacher, teaching methods remained largely teacher-centered as the British had left them. In 1993, the classrooms were still surrounded, still surrounded a courtyard, and few rooms had windows with glass panes. 
This meant that teachers' voices could be heard echoing across the courtyard as they called out the common check on comprehension, are we together? To which students invariably responded, yes. The other notable feature of the classrooms at Njema were the cement floors, washed daily by the female students at the end of the day, and the well-worn desks and chairs that had long ago lost the plastic feet designed to make moving across the cement floor a quiet process. Instead, they made a high-pitched squeaking sound when scraping the floor. And when the girls would move the chairs from one side of the room to the other, it was like 50 fingernails scraping the blackboard. And I see some of you squirming in your seats right now. Although the material conditions in the classroom required some pedagogical adaptation, I felt confident that my seven years of teaching experience in the United States and my recently acquired master's degree in teaching English as a foreign language had prepared me for anything I might encounter at Njema Secondary School. I quickly learned to forego activities that required printing on paper because at the time there was no photocopy machine for miles around. I found ways to engage my 54 students who were squeezed into 50 or fewer chairs each day and I developed techniques that would allow us to circulate the 20 textbooks that were provided. As an experienced ESL teacher, I knew the importance of competition as a form of motivation in the language classroom. Had I gone through my teacher education program two decades later, I would have undoubtedly read the most popular What Works book in the US today, Doug Lamov's Teach Like a Champion, 49 techniques that put students on the path to college. I may have even watched the video clips watching some of these champion teachers in action. But little did I know in 1993 that I was using the technique he calls positive framing. And one of the six types of positive framing is called challenge. Lamov writes, kids love to be challenged, to prove they can do things, to compete, to win. So challenge them. Exhort them to prove that they, what they can do by building competition into the day. Lamov also provides examples of what teachers can say to provide such exhortation, as in the following. Ms. Austin said she didn't think you guys could knock out your math tables louder than her class. And they're sitting right across the hall. Let's show them what you've got. As an ESL teacher with a bachelor's degree in psychology, I had studied the theory of operant conditioning, and I knew that motivation could be enhanced by offering small prizes during a com com competitive game. I had done this countless times in the United States, offering prizes like stickers and pens, and I thought myself rather ingenious for thinking about the cheap, locally available candy called pee-pee that I could use as the reinforcing stimulus to reward students when they gave the correct answer. So for a dollar, I bought handfuls of PP and stashed them in my desk for use during a game I had developed to practice the present continuous verb tense. When Friday afternoon rolled around, I brought plenty of PP to class so that we could play the game until everyone received a piece of candy. I was excited because I had not seen such an innovative method of teaching from my Tanzanian colleagues, except that it didn't work, or it didn't work as intended in this Form 2 English class in Tanzania. The game was designed to be fast-paced, with students from Team A in rows 1, 3, and 5 shouting out the subject of a sentence such as, the nurses, or the children. 
And team B, sitting across from them in rows two, four, and six, would use the present continuous tense to answer the question and receive a PP. It took only a few minutes of demonstration on my part before the class caught on. But it took even less time after I tossed the first PP into the air before all hell broke loose. As soon as the students realized that Candy was involved in the game, they were dragging their chairs from their rows to the rows where candy could be had, reaching their hands into the air to snatch the candy before the appropriate student could receive it. Students began shouting at each other and falling out of their chairs to get the candy. As an astute teacher, I quickly realized that throwing candy was not going to work. So I had the students move back to their initial rows, squeaking their chairs back as they went, and I placed the peepee on the desk of the appropriate student. Yet even this did little to quiet the students. They very rarely played games in the classroom, I learned later, and they certainly had never had candy distributed as rewards. Even though a dollar spent on candy was a trivial expense for me, a visiting US teacher, this was an outlay that most Tanzanian teachers could not or would not make. After cutting short the game and quickly wrapping up the class, I encountered several of my fellow Tanzanian teachers in the courtyard. They politely but firmly pressed me to explain what I had been doing in my English class that created so much noise. I realized that my students' shouting and scraping of desks had disturbed everyone who had a class during that period, and that such rowdy behavior on the part of students signified disrespect of the teacher. My Tanzanian colleagues wanted to know whether I needed them to provide some negative reinforcement next week by beating the students with a stick on my behalf. Needless to say, I declined their very generous offer. This vignette aimed to illustrate my two primary arguments this evening, and I want to express my debt to my long-term colleague, Dr. Leslie Bartlett, who has um, helped develop these ideas over the years. The first argument is that pedagogy, defined both as teaching and its associated theories, is contingent upon the material conditions in which teachers teach. Given the crowded classrooms, open windows, and noisy chairs in the typical Tanzanian school, Good teaching cannot always mean encouraging students to knock out their math tables as loudly as possible. Moreover, our research has shown that Tanzanian teachers' very low salaries mean that many hold a second job, making it highly unlikely that they will have their evenings free to develop innovative lesson plans or extra cash in their pockets to buy prizes. These material conditions of teaching greatly affect what teachers know to be good teaching. And yet these conditions remain largely under-theorized in the research in teacher education that Professor Bartlett and I have been studying. This brings me to my second argument. Pedagogy is culturally embedded, and this includes the very theories of learning upon which teaching is based. I contend that these theories of learning and the techniques that derive from them, especially those that circulate most broadly, are actually the least likely to admit their embeddedness in someone's local. For instance, the theories of motivation and competition upon which I base the Form 2 language game reflect a global capitalist logic that governs social life in many countries 
And it is so pronounced in the US that American scholars, myself included, rarely recognize it as such. In contrast, Tanzania was a socialist state from the 1960s onward, led by President Julius Nyerere. Most of the teachers at Njema Secondary School had gone through teacher education programs that were aimed at creating a new socialist man, one of the older teachers told me a few months later. They were not taught to promote individual competition and the acquisition of wealth in PP that lay at the heart of my game. Furthermore, Tanzania's particular form of socialism reflected extant norms regarding intergenerational relations. And one of the most persistent has to do with the reverence of knowledge of elders, be they party leaders, parents, or teachers. Youth are expected to demonstrate respect by sitting quietly and receiving the knowledge given to them. And this is going to be significant as the lecture continues. Therefore, teaching techniques that involve a great deal of movement, noise, and the posing of questions to which there is no single answer are generally regarded as methodologically and socially suspect. In my previous research with Professor Bartlett on the theories and techniques widely known as learner-centered pedagogy, we drew upon the work of Portuguese sociologist Boaventura de Sousa Santos and his twin terms of globalized localism and localized globalism. His work is consistent with a larger body of post-colonial theory that I will be discussing in a few minutes. But to suffice it to say that the circulation of certain educational theories, policies, and practices via textbooks, websites, and mobile experts, like myself in the case of Tanzania, has globalized particular understandings of teaching and learning that arose in specific cultural, economic, and political contexts. Yet globally circulating ideas are always reconstituted in local contexts, such that they become localized amid the particular conditions in which they are implemented and may not look quite like what their advocates had in mind. Epistemological diversity, or the ecologies of knowledge, is the term de Sousa Santos and his colleagues have used to recognize the incompleteness of all knowledges and the importance of a plurality of theories and practices that might be discussed and debated in one's field. De Sousa Santos averes, quote, the ecology of knowledges challenges universal and abstract hierarchies and the powers that, through them, have been naturalized by history." End quote. Similarly, I suggest that we as scholars in education and social work and other fields as well, ought to be more skeptical of knowledge that purports to be global, universal, or hold the properties of the holy grail a phrase I have seen recently in several sources in reference to John Hattie's visible learning. By doing so, we would foster greater appreciation for and analysis of the diverse material constraints and cultural contexts in which we and our colleagues work in the Global South. As a way of embracing epistemological diversity, I've organized the remainder of my talk as a combination of more and less traditional ways of knowing. In the next section, I further establish my theoretical framework 
by way of a review of relevant literature in the fields of the anthropology of education, comparative education, and post-colonial studies that have helped me think through what I call the what works genre as an instantiation of the globalized localism phenomenon. In particular, I'm interested in the amnesia that afflicts many scholars and practitioners from educational knowledge exporting countries like Australia, New Zealand, the UK, and most certainly the US, when we take knowledge produced in context familiar to us, but forget its origins when we apply it elsewhere. This more conventional approach to the production and reproduction of knowledge is followed by the less orthodox method in academia of storytelling. I've developed two brief vignettes based on my teaching and research in Tanzania for the past two decades that will illuminate some of the tensions surrounding the imposition and appropriation of global educational theories and techniques. I will conclude with a few comments that I hope will spark our discussion about the significance beyond Tanzania of this extended example. The work of US educational anthropologist Fred Erickson has served as a guide for my own scholarship for many years. In a recent article entitled Scaling Down, a modest proposal for practice-based policy research and teaching, Erickson describes a policy framework familiar to educators in North America and from what I'm told in Australia as well. He writes, our current educational reform policy paradigm presumes that history repeats itself quite closely indeed. And thus, what works in one time and place will work in lots of other places at other times. We find what works in a few settings using the gold standard of a randomized field trial of a model of educational practice, identifying and tracking measurable outcomes of practice. The presumption is that once we are certain of the outcomes of a set of practices, we could then replicate that model in many places. Fidelity of implementation is essential in this process of scaling up what works in school reform. Exact copying of best practices that are easily exportable on a large scale. If teachers and building principals will only do what they're told to do, adopt the research-based practices whose efficacy someplace else was proven by scientific research. In contrast to this policy paradigm of scaling up, Erickson offers a paradigm of scaling down. It challenges conventional wisdom about educational reform because it emerges from a different set of epistemological assumptions than one finds in the hard sciences. And here I include not only physics and chemistry, but also behavioral and cognitive psychology. Instead of a positivist epistemology that endeavors to identify universally valid principles, propositions, and practices, Erickson proposes an alternative based on his scaled down assumptions about what can be known through and transformed by educational research. He writes, the future continues to be original. The local refuses to hold still. General prescriptions for practice do not fit the circumstances of specific situations. We all must give up on the grandiosity of the current worldview the paradigm of scaling up in best practices and high fidelity implementation. A much more modest approach is necessary. 
scaling down expectations for what research can do and for how school improvement can take place. Now, neither Erickson nor I is arguing that researchers should abandon meta-analysis meta as a means of identifying uh, school-based factors that frequently correlate with increased student performance on standardized tests. Nor would either one of us want to give up on generalization altogether or forego the use of comparison as a means of learning. I'm in the field of comparative education. So, Teachers and teacher educators like myself learn a great deal from these studies. Instead, I want us to consider the what works genre as an element in the scaling up paradigm described by Erickson. In the classic Kuhnian sense of the term, a paradigm is predicated on the assumption that the scientific community knows what the world is like and that this same scientific community often overlooks or ignores the element of arbitrariness in the development of this certainty. To do so, I draw on three fields of study that could be conceptualized as a Venn diagram, each circle retaining its distinct contours, but also producing ample overlap where I locate my own work. I've already mentioned the anthropology of education and Erickson's view on scaled-down education policy. One of the most central questions to anthropologists of education, including Erickson and others, is how those who work in different educational contexts make meaning from activities, texts, and interactions with others. In the case of my own research in Tanzania, I have long been interested in the meaning of good teaching and how this has changed over time alongside different political ruptures. In contrast, the questions that most animate scholars in my primary field of comparative education have to do with the juxtaposition of contexts and cases, often but not always the comparison and contrast of entire countries in terms of their educational policies and performance on international examinations or assessments. These questions are often framed in terms of how similar educational processes lead to different outcomes in some situations, how different influences lead to similar outcomes in others, and how seemingly distinct educational phenomena may be related to similar trends or pressures. In this lecture, I'm interested in how the application of similar theories and techniques regarding what works leads to different outcomes broadly defined. Postcolonial studies, the third field, has been especially useful in helping me to frame the larger book project I'm working on from which my remarks tonight are taken. At the risk of oversimplification of a rich and nuanced body of scholarship, I offer Leela Gandhi's wor uh, words as a working definition. She says, postcolonialism can be seen as a theoretical resistance to the mystifying amnesia of the colonial aftermath. It is a disciplinary project devoted to the academic task of revisiting, remembering, and cruci crucially interrogating the colonial past. This mystifying amnesia about which Gandhi writes is frequently coupled with another element of the post-colonial project, namely provincializing Europe, as Deepesh Chakrabarty has aptly put it. 
To provincialize Europe was precisely to find out how and in what sense European ideas that were universal were also, at one and the same time, drawn from very particular intellectual and historical traditions that could not claim any universal validity. In other words, theoretical resistance means questioning the, putatively, the putative universality of social theory and treating the amnesia that has led to the forgetting of specific histories and the settings in which it was developed. While Gandhi's critique is directed primarily at literary studies and Chakrabarty's at the political history of South Asia, my interest lies in education and particularly in the theories of learning that circulate globally and inform notions of good teaching. Chakrabarty's argument about historians drawing on European social theory applies to educational theory as well. Even though I would expand Europe to include our countries as well. Chakrabarty writes, they do not ask of themselves any questions about the place from where their own thinking comes. They presumably produce their criticisms from nowhere or what is the same thing from everywhere. This view from nowhere stroke everywhere is particularly well described in your own University of Sydney uh, sociologist Raywin Connell's book, Southern Theory. Connell hones in on positivism and its epistemological claims regarding objectivity, quantification, and universalism. Objectivity, first and foremost, means that researchers operate independent of local knowledge and conventions that might affect the conduct of their research, thereby enabling a certainty that some theories and methods can be applied the world over. Connell describes this stance as indicative of general theory, which she believes is the quintessence of northern theory. By general theory, I mean theorizing that tries to formulate a broad vision of the social and offers concepts that apply beyond a particular society, place, or time. Such texts make propositions or hypotheses that are relevant everywhere or propose methods of analysis that will work under all conditions. To summarize, postcolonial studies directs attention to theorizing such as psychological theorizing about learning, motivation, and intelligence that appears to be from nowhere, but to quote Chakrabarty, all bear the burden of European thought and history. With this review, brief review, of these three bodies of literature in mind, and so too the space at the center of this Venn diagram, I now want to draw on my field notes, head notes, interview transcripts, and memos as a form of knowledge about the what works genre, as a way of exploring the material and cultural embeddedness of pedagogy. My initial interest in the vast literature on what works in education emerged in a very specific time and place at Columbia University's Teachers College. Located in the heart of New York City, it was a terribly expensive place to live. And I was a new assistant professor, or you would say lecturer, with a partner and two young children to support. We were fortunate to receive a very spacious apartment right above the Teachers College bookstore. 
This was fortuitous because it afforded us the space we needed for a family, but also because the bookstore's large glass windows provided a daily distraction for my young sons and me. The windows were filled with attractive educational toys and books for readers of all ages, and we always found something interesting to talk about when we peered inside and pondered the colorful cards, magnets, and games. The bookstore also provided me with an ever-changing array of texts touting the latest ideas about how to be a better parent and a better professor. I could help my children succeed by learning what works and why by Paul Tuck. I could discover what really works in elementary education by reading Murawski and James's useful texts. And as a professor of comparative education, I was very excited to find out what works in girls' education because according to the authors, evidence shows that it is the world's best investment. I'm not that I'm doubting that necessarily, but I'm trying to emphasize the point about the genre. Although these are all recently published texts, the Teachers College Bookstore had similar titles a decade ago. There were books that talked about the 10 steps to early literacy, four foolproof steps for engaging college students, and yes, the one I succumbed to out of desperation, potty training your child in just one day, proven secrets of the potty pro. Needless to say, my children and her children did not follow the same pattern. In the years since, I've continued to pull books off the shelf that promise to reveal what works, owing to the curious mix of hopefulness and skepticism that only a professorial parent can muster. In looking over lists of recent selections, one notices a distinct pattern. As noted earlier, the title of Doug Lamov's popular book is Teach Like a Champion, 49 Techniques That Put Students on the Path to College. Other texts on US educators' bookshelves today include Growth Mindset, 60 Wisdom Lessons to Improve Mindset, and of course, Visible Learning, a synthesis of over 800 meta-analyses related to achievement. When one looks inside books in the what works genre, they are marked by discursive features consistent with a positivist epistemology. First, most of them rely heavily on, quanti on quantitative studies to bolster their claims, with terms like rigorous, evidence-based approaches, and scientific used frequently. Second, the measure of learning, or what works, is based solely on student performance on standardized state national and international tests. And third, they draw extensively on theories of learning from nowhere, stroke, everywhere, with little to no recognition of the cultural understandings regarding pedagogy and education that differ around the world, and on the different material conditions in which students and teachers find themselves. I do not have sufficient time this evening to examine each of these points in detail. Instead, I offer two additional vignettes based on the principles of learning that I imagine all of us or most of us in this room would accept as universal. And yet, when applied in the Tanzanian context of teacher education, they bumped up against different epistemologies that inform pedagogy. These vignettes also reflect my attempt to assist in the scaling down process suggested earlier by Erickson. These vignettes come specifically from my experience during the past 10 years as an intermittent visiting professor and program coordinator at Mwenge Catholic University, 
an institution in northern Tanzania establishes a teacher's college in 2001 to prepare secondary school teachers in active participatory teaching methods. And as you can see from the slide, the, the institution has grown dramatically in the last 15 years. Its international faculty, particularly in its early years, ensured that the university's curriculum was firmly grounded in universally recognized principles of good teaching, many of which, such as learner-centered pedagogy and critical thinking, are also identified today in Tanzanian uh, national education policy. In 2007, a group of Tanzanian faculty at Mwenge University and I created an in-service program aimed at building teachers' understanding of and ability to use these principles of good teaching, because many had had little or no opportunities for professional development since they finished their uh, teaching programs. As Professor Welch mentioned, this program is called Teaching in Action, and it has been expanded and enriched over the years by additional Tanzanian, U.S., and European facilitators, including Dr. Matthew Thomas. Today, the program continues under the full um, direction of the Tanzanian faculty. Our team, and look closely here for Dr. Thomas, we have written a book together and several other pieces about the program. For anyone who wants to learn more about it, I'd be happy to share these resources. But let me say for now that it is an intensive, week-long program in which in-service teachers spend their mornings together learning about general principles of active, participatory teaching, and the afternoons they're spent with other teachers in their subject area, such as biology or chemistry or English. And this culminates in each teacher developing a micro-teaching lesson that they share and get peer feedback toward the end of the week. Although the facilitators have not always agreed on the content of the program, such as the extent to which gender and disability issues should be included, the common foundation for this international group of teacher educators has been educational psychology, because we have, for the most part, studied the same theorists and concepts. Thus, the TIA program draws on Howard Gardner's concept of multiple intelligences and how lesson plans should tap into the strengths of visual, auditory, and kinesthetic learners. It also draws heavily on Benjamin Bloom's work and, and later renditions of his cognitive domains and the importance of developing lessons that move students from lower order cognitive skills like remembering and describing to the higher order skills of analyzing, synthesizing, creating, and evaluating. Throughout the week, the facilitators are supposed to engage in meta-teaching as they put these ideas into practice in their own sessions, with frequent pauses to explain what they are doing and why they are doing it. The thinking behind this teaching is to make teaching visible. The TIA facilitators also use and name several of the 49 techniques from Lamov's book, like cold calling, every minute counts, and exit tickets. One of the other core texts in the TIA program is Grant Wiggins and Jay McTie's Understanding by Design, which some of you are probably familiar with. Some of their key principles and techniques that have been incorporated into the TIA program include backward design, where to, and essential questions, which I will address in the second vignette. Thus, it's important to note that even though I am critical of general theory and the overall what works genre, 
I also selectively rely on these forms of knowledge and I'm impl implicated in their global circulation. Making sense of such contradictions is the goal of the book manuscript I'm working on. And here, due to time constraints, I present only two stories, two vignettes from this larger effort. Vignette one, whose knowledge counts. One of the principles upon which there is wide agreement among teacher educators in techs and international teacher educators as in the TIA program team concerns assessing students' prior knowledge as the foundation from which lesson planning should begin. Whether we use the phrase activating student schema or meeting students where they're at, we agreed that it is critical to find out what students already know about a topic before we launch into teaching it. Thus, as facilitators, we set out to model a basic question and answer pattern that teachers could use at the beginning of the first lesson on a new topic. And we had KWL charts. What do you already know? What do you want to learn? And then what have you learned at the end of the lesson? KWL. And other techniques at the ready to demonstrate for this purpose. During the second year of the TIA workshop in 2008, my Tanzanian colleague and I led the first session of the workshop on the concept of multiple intelligences using an interactive lecture method whereby we wrote some of the notes for the lecture on the board, but we had intentionally left gaps as a way to model how to promote active learning or active listening. And let me just note that a large portion of a lesson in Tanzania will be spent with a teacher writing notes on the blackboard and the students copy the notes down because this becomes the textbook when there are no textbooks available. I had started the lecture by asking the in-service teachers what they already knew about multiple intelligences. And we noted their key terms on flip chart paper at the front of the seminar hall. At the end of the interactive lecture, following a discussion of its content, my partner and I sought to engage the teachers in a meta-teaching discussion of what we did during the lesson and why. The notes with gap method, as it became known, for promoting active listening made sense to the group. And there was a lot of nodding as we talked about how they could use it in their classrooms with only a blackboard and a piece of chalk as teaching aids. In contrast, the rationale for my question to find out what they already knew about multiple intelligences was not well understood. An older male student with a very skeptical look on his face raised his hand high in the air. Madam, he stated firmly, if you ask students what they already know about a topic, they will think you do not know about it yourself. Indio, indio, yes, yes, I could hear teachers quietly murmuring as he spoke. My partner and I asked the teachers to elaborate, and he, joined by others, explained that students will think teachers are fishing for answers among students by asking students for definitions of new terms and explanations at the beginning of a lesson about these concepts. They argue that it is different, though, when a teacher asks such questions the day after he has taught the correct information because then the students will know that these are review questions, testing their knowledge of what the teacher has already taught. 
Had the teachers in the 2008 TIA program been the only ones to have raised this, this objection to eliciting prior knowledge, I would have written it off as a query from an older, less well-informed group of in-service teachers. Yet it arose again in 2009 and 2010 and so forth, suggesting that it was not, as some education scholars and international development practitioners might assume, a matter of Tanzanian teachers not getting it. Rather, there was an epistemological difference about what constitutes knowledge and different theories of learning at play in the Tanzanian classroom. There were also distinct culturally informed differences regarding respect, teacher dignity, and the management of time that I'm unable to go into right now but would be happy to discuss further. Vignette two. What is essential about an essential question? Another principle upon which the facilitators agreed was the importance of higher order thinking skills and the use of techniques like posing essential questions at the beginning of each lesson to help develop these skills and to provide a structure for the unfolding of the learning process. According to Wingens and Matai, an essential question is open-ended, is thought-provoking and intellectually engaging, calls for higher order thinking, points toward important transferable ideas, perhaps across disciplines, raises additional questions and sparks inquiry, supports and uh, requires justification and not just an answer, and recurs over time. In the planning sessions for TIA, the more experienced facilitators would explain these reasons for developing essential questions to their newer colleagues, and they would provide numerous examples about the program itself. These included questions like, why would we want teachers to promote active learning? Or, how can teachers promote analysis in the chemistry or biology class? During the week of the TIA program itself, the facilitators were to model the use of essential questions in the morning sessions and the in-service teachers were encouraged to develop an essential question for their afternoon micro-teaching lessons and to write it on the blackboard before they began. In 2014, I observed the planning session for the TIA facilitators but did not participate in it because the Mwenge lecturers were supposed to be leading this TIA program themselves. I noticed that several of the facilitators were struggling with the concept of an essential question as I had seen in years earlier among facilitators and in-service teachers alike. During this planning session, the Moenge facilitators described the model lessons they were going to present on the first afternoon of the TIA week when working with teachers in their subject areas. In the case of chemistry, the chemistry lecturer proposed using the following as his essential question, quote, how is electroanalysis mechanism in the lab? The English facilitator suggested, quote, analyze how public school debate format can improve the language ability of students in secondary school. In the first case, the question itself was difficult to understand and was not in fact open-ended because the lecturer sought the specific electrochemical methods by which electroanalysis can be conducted. In the second case, it wasn't a question at all, which was a very common occurrence. 
And as in the first case, the facilitator sought as a response the same list of reasons for using public debate to improve language ability that she subsequently listed in her model lesson. During the TIA micro-teaching sessions the following week, the essential questions of the in-service teachers took many forms. A few met Wiggins and Matai's criteria, but the vast majority of the essential questions I saw on the blackboards throughout the week did not. Instead, they read like the following, and these are quotes. Identify types of friction. How can you construct a domestic DC power source using diodes? What are the major sources of food? On these slides, you can't see the board very well, but here's what's written. How can you state, prove, and solve problems related to circle theorems? What factors determine the location of industry? What is environmental pollution? In short, what was essential about an essential question in this context was that it could be effectively answered by recall alone. This is likely due to a number of factors, with one of the most important being that such questions are similar to the questions on the high-stakes examinations completed by secondary school students. In this case and many others, teachers and teacher educators displayed a strong preference for fact over analysis, thereby changing the very concept of an essential question. Now, how does one build theory from specific moments like these that is attentive to context but still allows us to generate theory? Theory, we should recall, is the medium through which we generalize in good qualitative research rather than seeking to employ statistical generalizability. Someone who has attempted such a task is Professor Helen Varon of Charles Darwin University in her compelling longitudinal ethnographic account of the multiple logics of mathematics and science. Based on years of working in teacher education in Nigeria, Varon's book unfolds with examples from her observations of in-service mathematics teachers who were fundamentally changing the lessons they had created with her at the university once they were back in their primary schools. In a particularly vivid vignette, Varon observes how, in a lesson on measurement, the Nigerian teacher added a step that she could not understand. The teacher had students use string to measure their height, and then they were supposed to take that string and see how tall they were by matching it with a meter stick, as Varon had taught them to do. Yet this teacher, instead, had students take the string, wrap it around a 10-centimeter cardboard piece, and then multiply by 10. Varon describes her initial reaction. I was scandalized. Mr. Ojo was presenting a bundle of short strands of string, a plurality as length, instead of demonstrating the prescribed singular extension. The notion of extension, said to be essential for children to grasp as the abstract element of length, seemed to have been rendered secondary, if not entirely deleted. Varon provides a number of similar examples that led her to fundamentally rethink her core assumption about her fields of study. As she puts it, almost everyone believes that mathematics and science are universal forms of knowledge. This almost universal belief 
in numbers universality begins with the notion of a natural number as a found and real object, as culture-free as a rock. And yet, she also rejects a relativist logic that would teach African or Yorba math as something completely separate from other forms of mathematical reasoning. The alternative she calls for is a post-colonial science, which sounds very similar to the ecology of knowledge's concept of de Sousa Santos that I mentioned earlier, in which one engages deeply and comparatively in the plurality of theories and practices in one's field. Similar to Varon, who over time begins to situate doing math within a broader cultural logic, I've come to understand that the different manifestations of good teaching are embodiments of diverse material and cultural orders. This does not mean that there is a distinct Tanzanian way of teaching owing to a static culture that prevents secondary school teachers in Kilimanjaro from using KWL charts or essential questions correctly. On the contrary, I anticipate far more use of these techniques by Tanzanian teachers, curriculum developers, and policymakers as localisms from the global north regarding good teaching reach ever wider audiences. What I mean is that even when Tanzanian teachers take up a technique like an essential question, it morphs into something rather different from the original. And in so doing, it becomes disarticulated from the universal theory of learning to which it was in initially linked. It is then rearticulated to a more contextually relevant understanding about knowledge production and dissemination, which, in this case, has to do with when it is appropriate for teachers to ask open-ended questions and when it is not, and when it is appropriate to play educational games and when it is not. My hunch is that we are likely to see ever greater diffusion of the what works genre around the globe, from the examples I shared with you tonight to those I could have discussed, like class discussion, feedback, and micro-teaching. Yet what these techniques look like in practice and why we do not witness a neat mimetic process from Minnesota to Mali or Sydney to Singapore has to do with the material and cultural context of teaching that are not isomorphic now and are not likely to become so in the future. To develop an ecologies of pedagogy, we must find ways to promote the dissemination of knowledge, a wider dissemination of knowledge regarding teaching and its attendant theories from a broader array of persons and places than one typically finds in teacher education programs. For example, in the two-year teacher education diploma program at Mwenge University, and, which I have taught in, there were no more than five African scholars whose work was listed in the syllabi for the 13 courses that the students took, and none were listed in the courses on research themselves. Students read many of the same British and American linguists and curriculum theorists that I had studied in my master's program at the University of Illinois, smack dab in the middle of the United States. They did not read the work of professors from the University of Dar es Salaam or the University of Nigeria where Helen Varen did her research. None of the syllabi listed readings by the first president of Tanzania, Julius Nyerere, who wrote prolifically about education. 
In her 2014 address at the Australia and New Zealand Comparative and International Education Society Conference, now known as the Oceana CIS Conference, which will be held here next week, Victoria University's Catherine Monathunga concluded her talk with an invitation to colleagues that seems a fitting way for me to end my lecture tonight. She asks that we promote the study of, quote, the multiple histories of phenomena being studied and the histories of our disciplines, as well as how key theorists work has been shaped by their own histories, geographies, and genders, end quote. It would be naive of me, though, to suggest that such work will be straightforward. Instead, it is vast, seemingly intractable, and politically contentious. Yet rather than continue to search for the holy grail in education, perhaps it is time for more of us to scale down, recognize the incompleteness of all knowledges, and become a bit more provincial and humble in our approach. Thank you. Thank you for staying with me. I believe we have time for questions, is that right? So I've covered a, a, a great deal of terrain here, so please feel free to, to comment, ask the group a question, or ask a question of, of me in particular. Hmm. Well, there are a lot of parallels. Yeah, that's a, a very good question. So uh, does LCP or PBL work in every context? And from my talk tonight, I guess I would say it doesn't work in the way that those who designed such, 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 such approaches to medical education or primary education may have intended. So what, what constitutes a problem may be different. What constitutes the, relation, or the proper relationship between doctor and patient will vary considerably. And I think that that's perhaps the main message I'm trying to get across here is that you know, we can use the same word, the same signifier around the world, but what it means, what it's linked to, is very, very different. So in comparative education, a lot of our, our work centers around the study of how policies travel, or policy discourses travel, or pedagogical discourses travel. And it's always very interesting to me to see how, in contexts where one might not expect terms like critical thinking to pop up. Because if repressive governments truly wanted their people to be thinking critically, they would probably not end up in power. And I'm saying this in the as an American right now. And we don't know what will happen there. Um, so I think that you know there are very few governments today that would not say students or learners are at the center of our educational system. So certainly the term learner-centered or student-centered is likely to, to proliferate if it's not in almost every educational policy today, but what teachers do with that, what uh, curriculum developers do with that varies greatly. And I think that you could probably do a some very interesting work looking at different notions of problem-based learning in a similar way that we've been looking at learner-centered pedagogy. Thank you. Yes. 
Yes, thank you. So it's definitely a work in progress. Uh, to be completely honest, I began this book in 2007 when I was on sabbatical as a Fulbright Fellow in, at Mwenge. And I wrote 12 chapters, and then I sat on it. Uh, these were vignettes uh, from different moments during that year that left me very puzzled about the beliefs that I had brought to Tansity. And, you know, this this was, I, I'd been living and working in Tanzania off and on for, for a significant amount of time by this point, and still it was like I knew nothing about the context. Uh, after spending this year during the year um, at this teacher's college. Because in the past, I'd been a secondary school teacher, a researcher looking at secondary schooling. But to be in a teacher's college was a very different experience. So in this book, um, I've gone back to letters home from 1990. When I was, I you know, the first trip to Tanzania, my mother meticulously kept track of every Aerogram, you remember aerograms? Um, and, and so I can look at, over time, how my thinking has changed in many ways. And those early letters are rather colonial in some ways. There are moments where I cringe and think, should I just burn this one? Because I don't really <laughs> want anyone to know that I wrote, about, wrote this way. But it, I think it's part of a kind of intellectual honesty that I would like to see more of in, in my fields. Um, we, students of mine will often ask questions of the research that I do as though these ideas were fully formed when I went to Tanzania and that I've got it all together and I understand these various theories and, and my own practice, and I don't. And so this book is an attempt to look over time at the lessons I've learned without it being solely focused on, on me. So it's a balance between kind of an auto-ethnographic project, but also a very analytical project, considering some of the questions that I've raised tonight about whose knowledge counts, about authority, about the ways that this experience in Tanzania has affected my thinking about a number of issues in education and beyond. So at the heart of the book, I would say is a, concept that I've come back to over and over again, and it comes from Johannes Fabian's book, Time and the Other, The Denial of Coevilness. And the denial of coevilness is so central, I think, to the critique that the post-colonial project has in mind. So long as a researcher, a human being, sees herself as in a separate period of time from those with whom she lives or studies, it's very difficult to do the kind of, of, of intellectual collaborative work that many of us seek to do. So some of the uh, stories in this book are about moments where I felt very strongly that coevilness was being formed. In particular, um, I have a very close Tanzanian friend that I've known since 1996, and she has um, become a part of, of my life in many very deep ways. Uh, a couple of years ago, we spent a month together. She was helping with a research project. She has two young kids, and I have two now older kids. But we started uh, joking about um, the 
Changamoto's Utafiti, which was like the, the challenges of, of research. She would talk to her husband on the phone, get off the phone and say, oh my gosh, it's so hard to be here while I'm trying to manage my children at home. And I would get off email with my kids or my husband and say, oh my goodness, it's so difficult to be a mother and a, and a researcher. And it was at those moments where even temporarily, there was a coevalness. And I, I, I'm trying to explain how that has happened through long-term relationships while the very next chapter is another example of how I continue not to understand that which I thought I did. So we'll see if I can wrap up the book by the time my sabbatical is over in August, but um, I, I'm trying to do so. But these are some of the themes I'm addressing in that text. Well, thank you very much. I look forward to reading it too. <laughs> Other comments or questions? Yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Well, I wish I had been there in this meeting of the uh, with Paulo Freire and Ivan Illich. It would have been fascinating. And it's well, no, they both went there together. Oh, they were different. A different. It to be the same year. Same year. Okay. You know, I think Paulo Freire is a very interesting uh, character in so many ways because even though he's Brazilian, he wrote quite a bit in, when he was at Harvard, for example. So he was both, you know, a, a northern and a southern scholar. And his work has traveled so widely. I mean, it's an example. It's a text that, you know, I see people nodding their head. We read it, we read it, we read it. Uh, and there's something very important about the ideas that he's expressing that are not um, specific to the context I think he was most concerned with, which was the military dictatorship in Brazil at the time that led to his um, uh, move to the US. What I find interesting in your comment, and I certainly hear this in the United States a great deal, is yes, but it doesn't apply here because we're not a poor country. We can't, you know, we can read some of this work. Maybe, maybe someone might read Julius Nerede's Education and Self-Reliance. My students do. But, but would someone say, you know, there's something that he's saying about the significance of experiential education, children learning through time spent outside of the classroom as well as in the classroom that is relevant to us as well. So my point about um, context should not be taken to mean that there are the, the, uh, the ideas of scholars who might be useful to us are so specific that they're only relevant in their home country. What I'm suggesting is in, instead is that Freire, to take this as an example, is an exception to what I see as the dominance of theory and, and, and methodology coming from knowledge, what I would call these dominant knowledge exporting countries. If in Tanzania, teacher education students are not reading scholars from Africa alongside Paulo Freire, alongside Anthony Welch, there's a problem. So it's also though a problem when edu teacher educators in, in our countries, in my country, I'll take it, have no idea that there is fine scholarship taking place 
around the world. And we, we have our students look only at examples from the United States, theorists from the United States, maybe the UK and Canada, maybe. The Australian, yeah, you know, someone who's really enlightened might bring in a few Australians. But um, beyond Paulo Freire or a couple of others I can think of, they're not going to be reading that work. Um, I believe, Matthew, you would agree when you were teaching in a teacher education program in Wisconsin, it was very, very unusual for those teacher education students to have a class with the word global in the title. Comparative education for teacher educators is highly unusual in the United States. And yet those are the very classes that I think uh, would provide students an opportunity to read more broadly examples, but also theory and methodologies from outside of their own provincial world. So thank you. You had your hand up. It's a wonderful uh, prospect. Uh, and I'm, I'm pleased that someone has been able to develop a, such a system of school. Is this um, separate from the public education system or these are public schools? Yeah. So. Oh, can you spell his surname? Ellie are similar. Okay, Ricardo. Uh -huh. So when I think about um, schools with no syllabi, I think of you know examples like um, schools or programs for young children, typically like Waldorf and and others, where there's a great flexibility. But it seems like that often stops once children reach primary school, or certainly by the middle of primary school and then the end. Um, it, my husband went to a school like this in the hippy-dippy days of Boston public education in the 1960s. It's called Fairweather School. And he often talks about this school with no syllabi, the very open education that they had. And I sort of romanticize about it and think it would have been wonderful. He said, but you know, when I got to middle school, um, I didn't know you know, my multiplication tables very well. I didn't know some of this core knowledge, core knowledge in quotes, that other kids had. And so, you know, he's a lot more skeptical of the experience that, than I am, even though I did not, you know, and I didn't go to that kind of schooling. So the romantic in me says, yes, it would be wonderful to have that kind of open education responsive to what children and their families and communities say matters most to them. I also think that there is certain knowledge that parents and children would probably want to have by the end of that educational experience because kids are increasingly mobile. They are going to be um, at least engaged with a broader world than perhaps their parents were through the internet um, and, and television and so forth. So some kind of commonality is, is likely to be very important even in a school system or a school program like this where there's no formal syllabus. I would very much like to see what actually happens in the classroom. Are guidelines and structures implemented or, or created over time such that these schools look a little bit more like the traditional education system or are they able to remain very specific to the population that they serve? I'll look up this, this talk as I have, I'm not familiar with his work, but I find it very, very intriguing. Yes. Thank you very much. It's really interesting. Thank you. 
Yes, exactly. Um, the quote from Leela Gandhi about amnesia, I think, is so very helpful. You know, people say, well, what, what do you mean by post-colonialism? Why is there a hyphen? Why is there no hyphen? What does it mean? I think that the key point, at least, that I take away from her work and, and that of others is that there's a pronounced forgetting that colonialism still resonates, is still relevant, in not only in the countries that were colonized, but the countries that colonized, me, colonized others or had internal colonization, like in the United States and in Australia. Uh, I, I often teach a class on international development and education, and we tend to read the work of one of the most well-known economists um, of, of economic development, Jeffrey Sachs. He has a famous book called The End of Poverty. Very well-known, widely cited. I think there's one sentence about colonialism in the book. He just dismisses it as relevant. So he's like, you know, all countries were poor in 1820, and then some became wealthy, and everyone can reach that point without a sense of history whatsoever. And so I'm you know, always pleased when my students say, well, what about colonialism? What about you know, the fact that, it, that all countries were not at the same point when this started? Uh, so I think that's critical for us to keep in, in mind whenever we're looking at um, educational development or international development programs. Also, in the courses that I had as a, a postgraduate student in comparative education, I don't think we ever read work about indigenous people's education in North America. It was always beyond our borders is what we do in comparative education. So it was only when I became a faculty member that I began looking for sources that I could bring into the, to our classes on um, the boarding school system for Native Americans. And many of the students in the class, US students said, I've never heard this before, didn't know it. And so we began to do a lot more comparative colonial analysis by looking at our own country as well as those outside, and I think that's very important. I want to um, point out, this is an early advertisement, I think it's okay for me to mention this, but the Comparative and International Education Society in the United States started um, this month a new program to have a symposium on kind of a cutting edge issue each November, October, November autumn in the United States. And the one for next year is going is entitled Decolonizing Methodologies. Mm -hmm. So what that says to me is that um, one of the largest, if not the largest, comparative and international education society in the world has said that decolonizing methodologies is a topic that is so important that we're going to devote an entire symposium to it. I can't imagine that happen, would have happened 10 years ago. It's a very, very important development, and I hope that um, some of you might be able to attend, but I certainly want to encourage scholars from North America to be there, to, get, to participate more in these dialogues about not only indigenous education, but indigenous ways of doing research and, and, and how we can bring these together in ways that might be productive for all involved and also to make uh, works like these part of the canon, because they're, they're, they're not at least in the, in the context with which I'm familiar, and I hope they are here. 
Yes. Yes, so um, thank you for the question. So what I was talking about today is a, um, a, smaller, a small part of what I would consider a, a much longer term project. And part of that larger project is very much at the sort of micro level, looking at what goes on not only in specific schools but in specific classrooms. Uh, Matthew Thomas and I have spent a lot of time along with our Tanzanian colleagues and um, others from the U.S. sitting in schools of different sorts, uh, private schools, public schools, Catholic schools, Lutheran schools, many of the schools in Tanzania are, are church-based, to understand what does, what, what does happen in the schools, what does good teaching look like from the perspective of the practicing teacher. And in some of those studies, like the book that I put up there, the Teaching Intention book, there are also discussions with students about uh, teaching. And so I think that what I'm suggesting here definitely has both a, a more macro, broader uh, component to it, but some of the most important understandings that, that I've developed have come from um, work much closer to the classroom and, and, and alongside teachers. Thank you. Maybe I, if I can just make an advertisement, I forgot to bring the flyers about um, a book that uh, Leslie Bartlett and I have coming out this month on rethinking case study research. And uh, in that book, we're trying to develop a way of doing research, not only in education, but policy studies more broadly, that tries to connect um, for lack of a better term, the local with global phenomena. And so I'd be happy to uh, share the information about that book with you or others who are interested. Thank you, Francis. Um, I'd like to uh, ask us all to thank Francis for what's been a very suggestive. Uh, thank you. Thank you.